This week's episode is brought to you by Bureau Veritas. At Bureau Veritas, each and every member of the team is by your side to help you navigate your decarbonization journey. This is Green Seas, the podcast by Tradewinds about the environment and the business of the ocean. I'm Eric Priante Martin, and today we're looking at a business at the bottom of the ocean, deep sea mining. There's been a standoff going on, far off the coast of Mexico, in the waters of the Pacific. This is the sound of a Greenpeace boat approaching a ship called the Coco, an offshore support vessel that's carrying out work for an outfit called the Metals Company. For the Canadian company, this expedition is laying the groundwork for a new industry, deep-sea mining for metals that the world needs. For the environmental group and others, it's an industry that shouldn't even get off the ground because it threatens some of the world's untouched wildernesses. There's been a legal battle going on in the Netherlands about Greenpeace's methods in this protest. A court has ordered its activists to leave the Coco, but allowed them to continue to protest nearby. But for today's episode of Green Seas, I wanted to get to grips with the content of the debate over deep sea mining. First, let's define what we're talking about. What the metals company is proposing is not mining in the way that we imagine it on land. Rather than digging up metals from below the seabed, it's planning to collect what are called polymetallic nodules from the sea floor. Chief Executive Gerard Barron had one of those nodules in his hand as I spoke to him over Zoom. It looked like a dark, knobby chunk of rock, and he says it's packed with the types of metals that the world needs for batteries. And his company's focus is on collecting this on what's called the abyssal plain, particularly one area in the Pacific. These nodules literally lie on the ocean floor like golf balls on a driving range. So we don't have to go and drill or dig. There's no mining per se, even though this category is known as deep sea mining. We're actually picking up rocks off the ocean floor. And that means that we can deploy technology that has much less impact. Then the other great thing is that we know that the oceans are 360 million square kilometers in size. But we're very fortunate that there's one little patch it's an area known as the clarion clipperton zone, where its nodules form in great abundance with very high grades of nickel and copper and cobalt and manganese. And on two of our license areas, we've identified around 1.6 billion tons of these nodules, and that's enough to build around 280 million mid-sized EV batteries using an NMC chemistry of 811. So it's really big. So to put that in context, it's big enough to electrify the entire light passenger fleet of the USA. The company plans to file an application with the International Seabed Authority in July and begin production in the fourth quarter of 2025. And it says that its work on the COCO will help it collect environmental data as the UN regulatory body works on developing new rules for seabed mining. So then why is Greenpeace's Louisa Casson in the Pacific trying to stop it? When I reached her, she was on the organization's vessel, Arctic Sunrise, which was floating just a kilometer away from the mining company's ship. Casson leads Greenpeace's campaign against deep sea mining, and she told me that this is an opportunity to stop an industry before it starts harming the environment. She says the metals company is pressing ahead with deep sea mining and ignoring the scientific warnings about its potential impact. 
you know, I think if we look at the actual uh, mining operation down in the deep ocean, we're talking about industrializing an area that is four or six kilometers below the surface of the waves. This is one of the very few places on our planet that is practically untouched by human impact. We are, that is so rare at this point in history. Um, you know, there is all sorts of weird and wonderful life down there. Uh, you know, a, a compilation uh, of, of science that came out earlier this year estimated uh, that so far scientists have found about 5,000 species down there, most of which are totally new to science, a huge proportion of which are uniquely found in these areas. So any kind of mining operation risks potential species extinctions. But also scientists are saying, you know, we still have thousands of species yet to discover. So I think, you know, there is also that sort of uh, moral argument about are we really going to destroy something when we don't even know the full extent of the damage we could cause? What we do know is that, you know, you would be uh, risking species extinctions. You would be, you know, entirely removing key parts of the habitat. So these polymetallic nodules that the industry is looking to get here in the middle of the Pacific, they are really where life centers around in these ecosystems. But in the eyes of the metals company, you have to look at it differently. The outfit argues that seabed mining on the abyssal plain has much less impact than the alternative. There's less life in the zone by volume when compared to mining on land. The carbon footprint of extracting the minerals there is lower on a life cycle basis than on land. And mining there provides the metals that are needed to help combat climate change. If you think about a, a scale looking at all of the um, different ecosystems on our planet, and where does the most life live? You've got two ends of the scale. At the one end, you have tropical rainforests. And unfortunately, that's where 100% of the growth in nickel supply, which is used to make stainless steel and is also a key ingredient for battery cathodes, uh, is coming from. But the unfortunate part about that is to get access to it, you have to remove the rainforest and all of the biodiversity that lives amongst it, as well as the indigenous people. But at the other end of the scale, you've got ice. That's where the least life lives. But right next to it is the abyssal plain. We measure the amount of life per square meter in grams, whereas we measure the life in tropical rainforests in tens of kilograms per square meter. Barron says it makes sense to mine in places where there's less life, not more. And rather than ignore science about the impacts of this nascent industry, he says the metal company is carrying out the science to best understand it. Well, let's think about Greenpeace. So some years ago, they were calling for more science, whereas now they're stopping science. They have an opinion that they don't want to see any more extractive industries um, progress. If only life was that simple. We're entering a period of trade-offs. We've decided that we need to transition away from fossil fuels. And to do that, we're going to need to build batteries, batteries for electric vehicles, uh, solar panels, wind turbines. On top of that, we have the developing world, and that's going to require a lot more metals, the developing world wanting to uh, industrialize. And that's really providing several demand drivers being we're going to have to mine billions of tons of more metal. And, you know, let's talk about experts. If we go back to the International Energy Agency, they uh, have reported that by 2040, we'll need to increase extractive industries by between five and 600% per annum. So where are they going to come from? Recycling is one option, of course, but we don't have enough metals in the system 
for recycling to make a meaningful impact for decades to come. First, we have to inject these metals into the system. And once they're there, they will stay there. They will be recycled for centuries to come. But what we should be focused on is where can we get those supply of metals with the lightest planetary and human impact? For Kassen, the potential impacts of deep sea mining go further. There's the noise and light pollution as a result of seabed activity. There's the potential for disturbing what is a giant carbon sink. And she said opposition to deep sea mining is growing. The companies that are actually driving the clean energy transition, you know, they're doing something new. They're making breakthrough technologies. They're using all sorts of different battery chemistries, um, and they're very aware of the environmental concerns. And because they are, they want to be part of this green transition, they don't want anything to do with deep sea mining. So I think, you know, initially, it was just that no car companies or battery companies were saying they needed deep sea mining. But now we have major household brands like Volkswagen, like Renault, like uh, Samsung, who are all saying, we support a moratorium on deep sea mining, we will not source minerals and metals from the deep sea. And she says there are 24 governments, up from eight a year ago, that are calling for a moratorium on deep sea mining. The most recent to join the call was Mexico. But not every country is resisting the industry. Birgit Leoden is chief executive of the Ocean Opportunity Lab in Oslo, and she pointed to an area of the Arctic Ocean that Norway is planning to map out to potentially open up to deep sea mining. When you look at the the Arctic uh, deep sea, but you have uh, you know depths down to four thousand meters, that also holds a very crucial role as a carbon sink. So you can say that's kind of the Arctic equivalent to the Amazonas, and we are extremely worried. You know what what will happen and and how it will affect very very fragile Arctic areas both when it comes to keeping carbon locked up and also potentially freeing up other, other things that we would probably not like to, to get up in the, in the open and how it will shift the balance in the areas that we are. I think not only the Arctic population, but the entire world is really depending on, on the function of the uh, Arctic deep oceans. Leoden's company works with maritime technology innovators that are aiming to make ocean industries more sustainable. For her, deep sea mining doesn't fit that bill. As she says, transitioning industries to a greener future must be carried out in a way that doesn't have a significant negative impact on an ocean that's already under pressure. And the Ocean Opportunity Lab's map of technology innovators includes battery companies that are moving away from the need for metals that deep sea mining would provide. So for instance, you have batteries without cobalt or nickel. You can extract lithium uh, from damp. There are multiple new alternative resources that will be replacing the rare earth metals in the decades to come. Then you have another component, which is kind of time to market. Uh, so according to two studies from Sintef uh, at NTNU here in, in Norway and EY, the expectation is that the, the metals from the deep seabed won't be available, industrialized and commercial in the market until maybe 20 25 years. And by that time, uh, another study tells us that we will have reached like the peak dependency uh, of the metals that are needed for the green transition. So basically, I would compare the deep seabed metals, I would compare them with another resource uh, that came from amongst other Norway that used to have an amazing market, and then the market disappeared. And that's whale oil. So I would say that deep sea 
metals is our times, our centuries equivalent to oil, uh, to whale oil. It's it's a non-sustainable product that will not be probably price competitive in the market. But Barron told me that it's wishful thinking to believe that there will be a breakthrough that gets the battery industry away from the need for nickel or other metals found on the seabed. Cutting-edge battery technology that's turning to sodium instead of lithium, for example, will need nickel to do the job, he told me. And those moratoriums? The executive said that if you look at the statements made by the countries that have signed on to a moratorium, you'll see that they're calling for more science. And it's companies like his that are investing in that science. I asked Barron if that science can be independent, if it's carried out by a corporation. That, that argument that the fact that we're paying for the science program makes it unindependent is a total load of bollocks. Like, we've got world-leading institutions. We've got the Natural History Museum. We've got University of Texas and Florida and Hawaii and National Oceanography Center. We haven't corporately captured those organizations. They have very long-standing reputations. And this is this is a piece of work. We've got the CSIRO from which is the National Science Lab in Australia, NIOA, the same in New Zealand. You know, they are getting involved in these complex uh decisions because we need our best minds on that. You know, we need to be having the best teams of people who are helping on these scientific programs. And you know, the last time I looked, organizations like Greenpeace don't spend any money on science. Andy says the recent protests are nothing but a distraction. The metals company's efforts will continue. Here's more on the environment and the business of the ocean. The Green Seas newsletter previewed the COP28 climate conference in Dubai. My colleague Paul Peachy reported that the International Chamber of Shipping says the industry has to fight for its fair share of green fuels at the UN summit. ICS Secretary General Guy Platten said his organization will use the two weeks of talks to persuade key decision makers of the importance of shipping in the energy transition and to ensure its unique position is recognized. Get the newsletter in your inbox by signing up at tinyurl.com slash greenseas. Tradewind's TW Plus magazine has profiled 30 people and teams who are playing a major role in shipping sustainability transition. The Green Power Edition looks at leaders, advocates, and innovators who are shaping the industry's future. Read it at tradewindsnews.com slash TWPLUS. And a study by the UCL Energy Institute found that most shipping banks are loyal enablers on the industry's decarbonization path. That means they want to support their clients' transitions, but they remain loyal to what those customers choose. If that choice continues to be fossil fuels, it could delay the transition. Read about it at tradewindsnews.com. Music for this episode is by Roma Young. 